The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good morning. It is a blessing to be here and to share with you this morning. Discipleship, as Grant shared, has been a part of my life for, for quite a long time. And um, I would like to share a little bit about this morning. There's been a plethora of books written on discipleship. And um, I don't want to come across as though I'm going a book summary or something like that this morning. But I want to talk about the things I've experienced and learned. But with that, I, wanna, I want you all to open your Bibles this morning for a minute. This is in your handout, but I want you to open it anyway. Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16. Now, oftentimes you've heard, well, <clears throat> a church can't disciple, or a pastor can't disciple from the pulpit. <clears throat> but I want us to look at this verse. And it says, uh, and, I, and the other thing I'd like to do, I'd like to have you memorize it, and after you've memorized it, I'd like you to tell me you did that. But it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual thongs, and then singing with thankfulness in your heart. When a church is operating in such a way that you can let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that's all about the beginning and the middle and the end of discipleship, letting the word of God be a part of your life. And then it, it talks about singing. And I ask you to open your Bibles. Martin Luther, who we're going to look at another quote from him, Martin Luther said that God rules his church through an open Bible. It's really important that we open the Word of God, that we know where it is on the pages, that we can share it with other people. It says to teach and admonish and others. Admonish others. But then the singing. You know, um, Singing with thankfulness. And songs are discipleship. Because when we sing songs that have meaning, they dip, make a difference in our life. And we will probably remember a, a song and the tune to a song more than, we'll than, more than we'll remember a verse. You know, there's verses, there's songs that are, that are just passages of Scripture. We sang a psalm this morning. So it's so important for us to see that and to recognize the fact that we attend a church that through the teaching and through the teaching of the life classes and all that goes with that, it's allowing us to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. So I want, you to, I want to encourage you to memorize that verse and think about it. Anyway, let's get started with discipleship and talk about why it's important. Does God have anything to say about it? Look at John 17, 4. It says, I glorified, Jesus is speaking, he says, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What a tragedy it would have been for Jesus to have come to earth, lived a sinless life, paid for our penalty on the cross, returned to the glory of the Father, but he didn't leave anybody behind to pass it on. And in this verse we see Jesus speaking to the Father 
and saying, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is referring to his 12, the disciples. This whole chapter, John 17, is a prayer about his disciples. He refers to them 40 times in this chapter alone. The next day on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. We must understand that Jesus had two great works, redemption and the training of the 12. So very important. So we, if we understand how significant that was as we look through and, and follow Jesus in John 17, the importance of discipleship is just paramount in everything that he said and did. So we have to go, obviously, to the Great Commission, but I want to just start in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. It actually says to us, rather than go, it says, as you are going. So it means whatever we're doing in life, a part of what we're doing ought to be making disciples. And we're going to realize as we go through the word this morning that, that much of, of discipleship is caught rather than taught. You realize that other than the red letter stuff in the Bible, in the Gospels, all that the disciples wrote in there were things they observed or things they had somebody else tell them. So much is taught, I mean, much is caught when we consider discipleship. So if we're going to begin the process of making disciples, we need to look at where Jesus started and then what we can gather from that and what he did then with his disciples. We'll go over to, uh, i got two verses in your outline, but let's just look at Mark 3.14. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. If we'll notice up in the verse in Luke, it says that he spent all night in prayer, asking God to help him to choose these twelve. Now the twelve, this, this choosing of the twelve wasn't random. He had many who were following him. We don't know how long a time it was from the time he first met these guys till when he actually called them, but we know he had plenty of interaction with men and women uh, up to this point. And here we see three significant things about how we should begin practicing discipleship. The first one is prayer. If you understand discipleship and you desire to be discipled or if you have been discipled, you need to be asking God to help you find someone that's going to build into your life. And you need to be where you are today in this church, <laughs> learning to let the Word of God dwell in you richly. So as you do that, you pray and you ask God to help you find those people. I have experienced in my life situations where I didn't do that. I just picked somebody because he was kind of cool and I thought it would be great. Sometimes that didn't work out so good. <laughs> and we'll look at that a little bit later as how you can be vulnerable and then be hurt. So the next part is what I titled this passage or this message this morning is with him. Together with him. Everything we do as it relates to our spiritual walk with God, not everything because we're alone sometimes, but when we're in the body of Christ, we are together, right? Unified together, but we're with him at that time. So as we look again at the verses we've read, discipleship is relationships. First our relationship with Christ and then our relationship with others. Discipleship focuses on the discipler being with Christ 
and the one being discipled being with Christ. It's all about being with him. And God has put a desire for relationships in every one of us, a desire that he, had, he intended to be met with relationships with other people, but most of all to be met by a relationship with him. 1 John 1, 1 to 4 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, and so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things that our joy might be complete. You know, you could talk about those verses all morning. That could be another time. But, but here we see this, this rich fellowship that comes out of this idea that John wrote here in 1 John. And, and, and that kind of fellowship, that rich fellowship is what prompted me to desire living a life in relationships that allowed me to be discipled and to also make disciples myself. But the third significant thing we see in the verses, especially in Mark 3.14, is to send them out. When Jesus gave the disciples what we now call the Great Commission, his commission to them marked the sending of them to the nations, to disciple the nations. And we see this sending out in another verse, Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Greg already prayed this morning about us having a, a, an evangelistic zeal, a, a, an understanding of people around us that we need to see come to faith in Christ. And that's where we should be praying, not only for those to, to disciple who are believers, but what a blessing it is to lead someone to Christ and then disciple them. So they're being sent, and we've been sent. As we are going, make disciples. So where do we start discipling? Where do we start doing that? I think, first of all, it needs to start in your home. If you've got children in your home now, you ought to be doing what you can to disciple them. You ought to be encouraging them to be in the Word, to be in the fellowship, to be in church, to be hearing the Word of God, um, and just to help them in a practical way, a way that doesn't make you, them see you as some, you know, just pushing them in ways they don't want to go. You just need to live the life in front of them, knowing that you're living your life with Him and help them to do the same thing. A little background, in 1976, by divine providence of God, I met a man named Bob Lewis, who was at that time serving with an organization called the Navigators. I'd not heard of them, but soon realized their ministry had had an early influence on my life. While living in another state and while attending a church that marked my life, it was a CMA church. The pastor's name was Paul Valentine, I'll never forget. And this church had a Sunday morning service like I had never attended before. I was young in my faith, and, um, and this was a perfect place for me. It was my first introduction to a good expositional Bible-teaching church. But, but listen about how the service was. And it was packed. They had two services. The morning service began with the congregation singing, Holy, 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 every Sunday. Never changed. It was always Holy, Holy, Holy. And that was only songs they sang. The pastor then preached two sermons. In a year that I was there, approximately, he was still in Luke, and he was still in Psalms. <laughs> and uh, in the evening service, we sang more songs, and he preached another sermon. 
I remember somebody told me one day, we asked Pastor Valentine, why do you have a service like this? He, says, he said, I have only a few minutes each week to teach this congregation the Word of God, and I'm going to use every minute I possibly have. So I actually learned to sing tenor, the tenor part to Holy, Holy, Holy. That might be the only song I ever learned that from because we sang it so many times. But what better song to sing than the holiness of God and to hear the Word? So that was a unique experience. So it was at this church I also experienced the first, it was also the first church that, 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 had, that was elder-led. And I found out later that many of the leaders there uh, had been discipled by someone trained by the navigators. I never knew that while I was there, but it played a part in a later decision that I was to make. Also at that time, my job put me on the road, so I was traveling a whole lot. So between memorizing Scripture and I would listen to, look at this, guys. This is a cassette tape. (laughs) I would listen to cassette tapes of John MacArthur. This happens to be a, a tape by John MacArthur. But anyway, that was, that was, I was being fed by that. I was being fed in this church. And, and, that, and I re- reflecting back on that, I then, I then, um, I then meet this guy um, with the navigators. Now, let me go back to Bob for a minute. And by the way, this is the guy who, who has significantly enlarged Pastor Grant's library. Some of you were blessed with the opportunity to carry those boxes up the stairs to his office. You can probably remember that. <laughs> anyway, Bob... Bob um, is also a, a Marine in the past, and uh, or current. Is that how I say that? Former. A Marine always right. He always reminds me of that. Bob does too. And Bob's a, a number of years older than me, and that's getting pretty old. And he, uh, he still um, challenges me most every week on a Zoom call. And um, when I first met him, he was running 10 miles a day reviewing 1,200 verses. Can you imagine that? And um, he's memorized the whole New Testament, much of the old. We would spend hours and hours together when I eventually began to spend more time with him. But let me tell you how that happened. Our family had moved to Philadelphia area, and someone from Ohio called me suggesting I contact the guy with the navigators, and it was Bob. We met for lunch, and because of my experience in the Ohio church and with many of the leaders there, I was committed to what we saw earlier in the Colossians passage. I was desirous of letting the word of Christ dwell richly within me. And so so I meet this guy, Bob, and we sit down at lunch, and the thing that that struck me was he hadn't met me before, but, but during that whole time, it was about me. He was focused on me. He wasn't checking out somebody else walking by or Checking his, I don't even have phones in our pockets back then. But anyway, he was, he was concerned about me and, and asking questions about myself, where I was going, what I wanted to do. And by the time we finished that meeting and then a couple of others, I pretty much decided I want to be a guy like him. Because not only was he able to focus on me, but he focused on the Word of God. Everything that came up, he would bring a verse out and we'd talk about it. And I thought, that's what, that's what I want to, I want to be able to do that. I want to, I want to be able to share the Word of God in a comfortable setting with people and help them see what God has to say about it. The most significant verse that he shared with me was 2 Timothy 2.2. Some of you have memorized it. It says, what you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit the faithful men who can teach others also. We see four generations in the verse. Paul to Timothy to faithful men and to others. And in a remarkable way, I realized that my success in, in business was based on that principle of that verse. 
you all know that if you have a good product, it doesn't do you any good unless you have good people to not only make that product, but sell that product, distribute that product, everything that goes with it. Now I realize that I have, this is going to make me sound blasphemous, but, but Jesus is a product, in a sense. Our responsibility is to market who he is. What a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to do. Anyway, back to making disciples. When we find a man or a woman who desires Christ like this, and we know he or her, her, their hearts are for people, then here are a few character traits I want to cover that we consider this morning. We're going to look at these and then consider a few specific verses. Uh, I want to see a man or a woman who exemplifies these things. First, a lover of people. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then the great commandment says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves in Matthew 22, 37, and 39. Well, you can tell when you spend time with someone whether they really care about people. And um, th that's one of the things that you need to be able to do before you think it's time to disciple someone. But secondly, the lover of God's word. John 8, 31, 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The King James says, If you continue in my word, one of the navigators that has now passed away shared regarding this verse, you teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. So we start with ourselves. If we're abiding in the Word of God or continuing in the Word, we should be changing. There should be a difference happening in our life, and you're going to be able to recognize that. You know that's happening because you respond differently to different things that happen in your life. Wow, I used to respond a little differently than I just did to that. That person really didn't do anything worse than I might have done someday. Why am I so angry with him? I probably would have done that too, or I have done that in the past. So God's Word gives us a command to obey, examples to follow, errors to avoid, blessings to enjoy, and promises to claim. So every time we open our Bibles, we need to say, Lord, open our eyes that so we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Psalm 119.18. Then if we're journaling, we write in our journal. God said to me today, there's a command to obey, there's an example to follow, there's an error to avoid, there's a blessing to enjoy, and there's a promise to claim. And Jesus Christ's life becomes our life. As we spend time discipling others, how the Holy Spirit through God's Word is changing our lives is what we reproduce because we reproduce what we are. And the people we minister to, for better or for worse, turn out just like us. Luke 6.40 says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Again, think of the title today, Together with Him. As we spend time together with Him, we become more like Him, and we influence those around us for the same. And the third thought is to be faithful in prayer. Colossians 4.2 says continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We need to be encouraging those people we're discipling to spend time in prayer. We need to pray with them about everything that's on their hearts and on ours. But then there's fruit bearing. Look at John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, <clears throat> that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then importantly, Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. We see in the Galatians passage that Paul defines fruit in the terms of, and, and relates mostly to the idea of character. But in the Proverbs verse, we see the fruit of righteous life being the fruit that influences others. Matthew 4.19, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers. fishers of men. He doesn't say he'll attempt to make us fishers of men. He says he will make us fishers of men. And I'm always speaking of women too, ladies. This man with the navigators that I mentioned earlier, he shared the idea that fishing for men by stating that fishing for men is catch and release. When you catch men, you do two things. First of all, you teach them how to feed themselves from the scriptures and then how to talk to others about God, to share their faith. And once a convert knows how to feed himself and talk to God, and he's plugged into a good local church, get him back into the stream with non-believers. It's time for him to reproduce and fish for men. And it's exciting to hear when, when you have a chance to bring somebody to saving faith in Christ, and then they have a chance to disciple them, and they come back and tell you about that. That's the most exciting thing to realize what you've been practicing, what you've been learning, is actually getting passed on to someone else. So encouraging. Some of you may need to consider some of the opportunities you have for fishing. These opportunities may be in places that you would consider risky. This is such an important point. Perhaps you would be concerned that others are going to think you are a religious fanatic or you're some other kind of strange alien because you're always talking about Jesus. But listen to this. Fear of risk is the greatest enemy of faith. The greatest hazard in life is to risk nothing. And this week, I'd ask you to consider making that first cast into your pond, wherever you happen to be. Do something. Think of something, some way to ask somebody. Ask them about whether they have a faith journey. Ask them if they really know if they're a son of God or not. Ask them some kind of a leading question that will let you talk about Jesus. Give them a gospel. John, we've got some here, and some of you have been in the evangelism class. Don't let people get away with thinking that they just aren't considering Jesus at all. Ask them if they're considering and not considering Jesus out of ignorance. That's a challenge to people. Say, hey, you know, it's not very smart to say you don't believe something you don't even know about. So at least take time to read the book that was written by Jesus' best friend. Read the Gospel of John. Find out who he was. That's what brought me to faith in Christ. But they also need to be selfless. In Luke 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We realize and we think about that verse as being, being willing to die to yourself. And, and for Jesus, that's what that meant. That's what the cross was. But remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying, he said, let this cup pass from me. But if you don't, basically, he said, thy will be what? Done. Thy will be done. The cross for Jesus was the will of God for his life. Let me suggest to you that the will of God for our lives is what we should be seeking. So when we think about this verse, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the will of God and seek that for my life. What is the will of God for me? It won't be the same it is for somebody else. 
but seek after what the will of God is for you because that will be something selfless oftentimes because you'll think, wow, I didn't think I was going to need to do that or I wasn't going to go to this mission field or that mission field. God says, I want you to come after me. Deny yourself in this. My will for you is something different. Then to have a servant spirit, beginning verse 14, if then we know this story about Jesus washing feet, and he says, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, I don't think Jesus was mentioning, was realizing or, or wanting them to realize that what he was teaching them is just go wash feet. He was saying, I did something very, what you would call very uncomfortable. Their feet were dirty. And, uh, and he washed their feet. And Judas was there, and he washed his feet. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. <laughs> the example of, of, um, of serving, these are kind of simple things, but I think I said this maybe a few years ago. I shared, well, I was traveling with Bob one time. We were in a little strip hotel staying there, and, and that morning I saw him strip his bed and pile the stuff up on the end of the bed. And as normal, I would ask him some questions. So I said, Bob, why did you do that this morning? Isn't that what they do here and get paid to do? He said, Jim, did you see the lady that was going to have to do that in our room today? Was it easier for me to strip this bed or her? That sunk in. And then the other thing he would do, it didn't matter where we went and what we did, Bob would pick up trash. We would be walking on the campuses up in Pennsylvania, and there'd be a can there, and he'd pick it up. There'd be trash in the McDonald's, he'd pick it up. I have a hard time going past, my wife will testify, I have a hard time going past anything on the ground today that I don't, if I can, I'll pick it up and throw it away someplace. Kind of a simple thing, but it was caught, wasn't it? I had a ministry with some doctors in, in Ohio, and um, they wanted to go do cold turkey evangelism on a campus. We happened to go to Kent State University, and, uh, and while we were there, we went to the cafeteria to eat. And in that particular evening, somebody had spilled a tray of food right in the pathway between we were, where we were walking and where we would go get the food. I didn't even think about it. I didn't think about my being some great servant. I just bent down and started picking up the stuff. Got some napkins and, you know, and, and these docs were standing there looking at me like, what is he doing? Then a few of them started helping. It was probably a year later, I was at a Christian Medical and Dental Society conference. I had the chance to speak at it up in New England with uh, J. Everett Coop was actually there uh, as the main speaker. And um, one of our guys had a chance to do a devotional. He gets up and he starts to tell this story. He was with this guy on a campus and the trays filled the food. And, and I looked at him and I said, what is he doing? Then I realized we should be helping. We should be helped picking that up. Guys, I share that because that's what happens when you end up with a servant's heart. You can't spend people, you can't spend time around people who are serving others without starting to do it yourself. Some people will think, what did you do that for? Now, I, I, I don't know. I just, that's what was modeled for me. Jesus probably would have done it. And so that's what I'm doing. So, so part of this, so much of discipleship is just caught. But there's more character traits that are in your hand that, we want, we want to be joyful. This, this life with Christ is a joyful thing. It's not something that we should be down and out about. We need to be joyful. We need to be patient, kind, good, generous. We need to be faithful. 
gentle, sensitive. We need to be available if we're going to be helped, available to be in classes, available to be with the person who's offered to encourage us. We need to be honest. We need to be transparent. Nobody can disciple if they don't know who you are. You need to be willing to trust somebody. Tell them who you are, what you're dealing with. You need to, be, uh, you need to understand confidentiality. In our ministry with Capital Commission, when we're working with state leaders and, and uh, politicians, they need to know that there's nothing they tell our guys that's going to get out of there. Like they, they can tell us things that they can't tell anybody else. Sometimes it's very sad. Sometimes it's a very sinful thing that's happened or something that wasn't honest. But they can tell because there's confidentiality. But also self-controlled. We all struggle with that in the areas of our life. Accountability. Since 1992, and I met yesterday morning, since 1992 I've been meeting with two guys, one guy my age, one guy older. We've met uh, probably at least 50% of the weeks of the year we've met since 1992. We hold each other accountable. We look at the Word together. They're praying for me right now, and they will listen to this <laughs> as soon as they get out of their church service in Providence accountability. We have to have it. I don't trust myself, guys and gals. I don't trust myself to not know that I need somebody asking me hard questions. And then vulnerability. That's the idea of being yourself and sometimes sharing that things didn't go so well this week. I need you to pray for me, to be vulnerable. So consider all these things related to your life. They're very challenging, aren't they? I mean, wow, I was, I was preparing this message. I was really convicted and actually <laughs> uncomfortable realizing that I'm going to be teaching it because it's so often um, I, I used to tell the people that if I go to a church service and if I leave that sermon and leave that church service and I'm not convicted of anything the pastor probably didn't do his job so if you leave this morning and whether or not you're convicted or not my job was to convict you a little bit and let the Word do that. But if you're not, I'd keep that to yourself. <laughs> but there's one more thing before we spend our last few minutes looking at the last time Jesus' disciples were with him before he would give his life on the cross for them and, and for you and me. And we're going to look at the Lord's Supper again. I did something in July, and I just want to finish off our time together with him and cover that again this morning. Anyway, this is important um, not to dismiss the other things, but if you begin opening up yourself, um, your time and your energy, your emotions, perhaps even your checkbook, to those you believe God has brought into your life to disciple, you must do so. Prepare, you, you need to do it prayerfully. I want you to take note of this. Need does not determine the will of God. Need does not determine the will of God. Prayer determines the will of God. You're going to find yourself getting involved in people who are in great need. And you're going to find out later on, you can't get out of that. Now, it's not that nobody should be helping those people, but it may not be yours. When back in Ohio, um, now as a NAV rep, God gave me a special ministry, as I said before, with these physicians. And um, these men were very popular in our town. They're every nonprofit organization, every Christian school, every community outreach thought that these guys ought to be serving on their board and writing them pretty big checks. I remember again taking this thought from another navigator, telling them that life is one big baggage claim area, and not every suitcase that comes off of that conveyor has your name on it. 
You need to remember that. This morning, some of you need to go home and pick up some suitcases that are in your closet, and you need to take them back to the airport and put them back on the conveyor belt because they've got somebody else's name on it. They're addressed to somebody else who's looking for them. Then again, there may be some suitcases with your name on them, and you need to get them out of the airport storage because inside they may say, your son needs some time. Your daughter needs some time. Your wife needs some time. Your parent needs a call, and perhaps they need some time from you. Or perhaps there's a message in there that has this little card in it, like you saw this morning. Perhaps what you're looking at is an opportunity in that suitcase to serve at Capital Community Church. Anyway, I've probably made you a little uncomfortable again, but let's close this part of our time together with what's my life verse and maybe a verse that you can memorize on your own. It says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. New American Standard translation that I memorized it in because I just want you to think about and reflect on how special it is to have an opportunity to minister in other people's lives. If you didn't have someone to do that for you ever, then you're, you're just not going to get to that place where you would trust God would have you. So during our communion service back in July, I shared some thoughts about the Lord's Supper, which was the last celebration that Jesus had with him and his disciples. With him. And I had told you today's message together with him because our church believes that gathering as a body of believers is the most important thing that we are going to be doing. We're going to be doing that because we're all here together with him. Now, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are obeying Jesus' command to remember him and his sacrifice for us. Now, many of you may not have been here in July. Others have probably forgotten it, but um, I want to just take a moment looking at that again it was a special time. According to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, this is what we know today for certain about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. First, Christ's death. As we participate in the Lord's Supper, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. The bread is broken. It symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. When the cup is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. Number two is our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. Jesus commanded his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. As we individually reach out and take the cup for ourselves, each one of us is by that action proclaiming, I am taking the benefits of Christ's death to myself. When we do this, we give a symbol of the fact that we participate or share in the benefits earned for us by Jesus' death. And then I'm going to move ahead. There's spiritual nourishment that he speaks about and then unity of believers. That is so important. We need to be a body that's unified together. Anytime we hear anything in this congregation that would sound as though it's criti criti a criticism, something that would be, be uh, more of a gossip, whatever it is, you need to shut it down on the spot and say, I'm a part of one body and you're hurting me by what you just said. What you just said about that other person in our church if you're going to speak that way about him, you're hurting me. So stop it. I don't want to hear this. Don't tell me about that. 
When we put the four things together that Dr. Grudem spoke about, we began to realize the rich meaning of the Lord's Supper. And when I participate, I come into the presence of Christ. I remember that he died for me. I participate in the benefits of his death. I receive spiritual nourishment. I'm united with all other believers who participate in this supper. This time together with him is such a, a, a wondrous cause for thanksgiving and joy. But our understanding of this time together can't end here because when it says, looking again at Luke 22:20, Jesus said, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, spoken, saying, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And it's telling us far more than we might know. In Revelation 19, 7 and 8, we see a verse that we call, it's kind of an introduction to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people had very strong traditions and customs. And uh, they would live in communities together. They'd know who each other was. As Jewish little boys and girls would play together, they'd get to know each other. They would interact with extended families and neighbors, and they would just know everybody around the community. And as it would be with a boy or a girl, as they began to get a little older, they would notice one of the other boys or girls. The boy especially would notice this girl, and, and he would make him home, and he may say to his dad, I, I noticed um, so-and-so's, I should have got some Jewish names to make this real this morning, but forgot to do that. Probably couldn't pronounce them anyway. So anyway, he, uh, he comes home and says to his dad, you know, I, I happen to have noticed so-and-so, and she seems like a really deep gal, and, uh, and I've talked to her some, and she'd be pretty special. So the dad says, well, let's go. Let's go together, and what we'll do is we'll go meet her father and um, maybe even her mother, and, and we'll ask them if they would be willing to, um, to allow us to bring about a marriage between you two. And so they would go to meet. The father and the son would go down to the girl's house. They'd find her father buried at the house or in the village. And they would sit with him, and they would suggest that they would like to consider marriage of this young man with this young woman. And if her father was agreeable, they would discuss a bride price. Now, if the price was agreed upon, the girl's father would go to the girl privately, tell her what had been discussed. And yes, she did have the right to refuse, but they would have probably already worked this through. If she agreed with her father, a marriage contract was signed by the parents of the bride, and the bridegroom and the parents of the bridegroom would pay an agreed-upon dowry to the bride of her parents. And, and this began what was called the betrothal period, what we would today call an engagement, but it was really a marriage at that point, a covenantal marriage. And this period was the one that, this, this was a time, the same thing that Joseph and Mary were in, were, had involved in their lives. That's where they were when she was found to be with child. So to confirm this first commitment to one another, this is important, the bridegroom and his bride would come together and share a glass of red wine. They used red wine in Jesus' day as a symbol of both blood and joy. Blood because the color was referencing the ancient blood path tradition of cutting a covenant that we find in Abraham, I mean, of Abraham, with God, the covenant he made with God in Genesis 15. And they were initiating a till death to us part agreement. The symbol of joy came because God had commanded his people 
to drink wine during the observance of the feast of the tabernacle to increase their joy. I don't suggest we do that. <laughs> we want to have joy in the Lord, not in the bottle that we just enjoy. Anyway, at this betrothal time, the two would state their commitments to each other. The young man would take the initiative and extend the cup of wine to her and say, this cup is the covenant of my love. He would sip from it, and she, uh, if she was agreeable, she was at that point, to the covenant, she would take it and drink from it, promising to be faithful to her new husband. At that point, um, they would take and drink it, and as promising to be faithful, they would call it a vow, a vow, and they were legally married. The boy would then go back home. Follow this now. The boy would then go back home to build a house for her, adding to the family compound. And while the girl would return to her home, she'd put a veil over her face to cover her beauty to protect her marital faithfulness from someone else seeking to woo her. And she would stay mostly with married women who would be schooling her in lessons from other married women about what it meant to be a Jewish wife. She would wait until the day unknown to her that the groom came to her. Now the boy, in the meantime, he was at home getting a place ready. John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If, I were, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that there where I am you may be also. In Jesus' day, the Galilean-style house was one in which the mother and, and the father dwelled in the one side of it, and then they would create a circular pattern. The courtyard would be in the middle, and it, would, it was the father then Listen to this again. It was the father who determined when the home was ready and when it was appropriate for the husband to go get his bride. As the days and months ticked off the calendar, the girl would be anxious, perhaps concerning about, concerned about her decision, because it could be up to a year later. So the groom would send his friend, what we would call his best man. This is so cool. He would send him to her and take her gifts to make sure she knew he really, this decision was real. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. One day, perhaps up to a year later, it would be time. The groom would gather the best man. They would march, usually at night to her home, blow the shofar, announcing their arrival. The girl and her friends would jump up in their small lamps, and they would create a torchlight parade through the streets to his home. This is the basis of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. The couple would then, then enter the bridal chamber while the best man would stand guard at the closed door while they consummated the marriage. When they came out, the marriage supper began, and it would go on for days. We see here there seems to be three phases. And follow this with me. Three phases are customs that make up a Jewish wedding. And at some point, God conveyed this to his people to the men and the men who are going to be fathers. But follow this. What John's vision in Revelation pictures is the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus, and his bride, the church, us. This is the third phase. But the implication is that the first two phases have already taken place. The first phase was completed on earth when each individual believer places their faith in Christ as Savior. The dowry price was paid, wasn't it? was paid by the bridegroom's parrot, God the Father. It would be the blood of Christ shed on the bride's behalf. 
the church on earth today that is betrothed to Christ. And like the wise virgins of the parable, all believers should be watching and waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom. The second phase symbolizes the Lord's return when Christ comes to claim his bride and take her to the Father's house. The marriage supper then follows as the third and final step. And this will be a glorious celebration to all of us who are in Christ. One last thought. When Jesus spent his last night on earth celebrating with his disciples this Passover meal, he took the cup. And do you remember what he said to them? He held out the cup, and after making a blessing, he extended it toward them, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Passover pattern and words had been followed for centuries, but this wasn't a part of it. This wasn't a part of this meal they'd celebrated before. There were four cups of wine during the meal. He just added a fifth cup, and he said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. What was Jesus conveying to them? He was saying, you are spiritually going to be my bride. If you take this cup, you promise to be faithful to me until I come back to get you. I love you with everything I have and am. Will you return my love with faithfulness and obedience, keeping the terms of the relationship sacred? Oh, with what great love he loved them, and he loves you. And you're secure in the covenant of a never-ending love. And I thought as I was reviewing this the other day, maybe yesterday, that Judas wasn't there. He was already gone. He couldn't have been there for this. If he was there, he couldn't have taken that cup. My prayer this morning is that you're going to see the significance of the Lord's Supper in ways you haven't seen it before, to understand what discipleship means a little more than you have before. But here Jesus was offering himself as the Lamb of God, but in addition to that, he was asking for our faithfulness in return. When the cup and the bread are extended to you this morning, imagine the Savior reaching out the cup to you and saying to you once again, I love you. I will come back to get you. You are my bride. Have you forsaken all other loves and lures of this world and been faithful to me? If not, it's time to repent. So if you think about that this morning and you need to repent before you take the cup and the bread, then do that. If you've never trusted Christ at all and don't know what in the world this is about, then give your life to Christ this morning. You may be thinking, I didn't understand this before, but I understand it now. Jesus gave his life for me, and he asks me to be faithful to him. Celebrate this morning because there's a more wondrous fellowship meal in God's presence in the future, so rejoice. You are his bride. Will you be faithful to him? Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.